0: So you're saying I shouldn't bring my Zoom recorder then? No, I'm saying make sure you don't claim to be a, a journalist. I nearly yeah. said terrorist then. Don't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm not a journalist. I'm a terrorist, you silly ass. <laughs> <laughs> With my beard, man. I don't know. They yeah. might think I am. If this is the last episode of User Error in the feed, then
1: we all know why. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. User Error 64. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And don't forget, at user error show on Twitter. That's probably the best place to ask us the hashtag ask error questions. All right, let's start with something I think you brought up, Dan. And that is why is hardware support so terrible? Why can't you just install an OS and have everything work? I don't really get this question because if you have Intel only hardware, like a ThinkPad or something, then everything does just work. So have you got some funky hardware that I've never heard of?
1: So I think. This topic comes more from a place of feedback that we get from users all the time. And they're not just running Intel-only hardware, right? They have NVIDIA or AMD graphics cards or some kind of dual graphics card setup. Um They have fingerprint readers. They have exotic webcams. They have, you know, who knows what, right? And increasingly, um, users expect support for uh, high DPI and um, convertibles that have accelerometers and uh, multi-touch and things like that. So it's, uh I think... An opportunity to discuss, there's so many moving parts, how come everything just doesn't work like it does on Windows? Because
2: our user base is so small compared to Windows, and so the companies who make the various components don't bother porting their drivers to us.
1: I think it's more than just drivers though, right? Cause even so from, from a, um, a desktop environment maker perspective, even if the hardware drivers exist, um, there's a whole other thing of, do we have that hardware to write against? Uh, for example, I think maybe one person in the uh, elementary developer wider community has a working fingerprint reader. And so how can only one person be expected to design, write, test fingerprint support for everything that we need from how to set things up in system settings or how to log in at the lock screen without people having access to hardware even if drivers exist for some subset of working hardware Uh, It can be really difficult. Well, maybe there should be just one distro
0: and everyone should work on that one distro rather than having a hundred different distros and everyone trying to do fingerprint reader support in a hundred different distros. Let's all just work together on one distro. That would
2: work. Right. So let's all just settle on Arch and then that'll be fine. Sure.
1: Isn't Arch like the worst choice for this because it's so non-opinionated? Right. It is
0: because... They basically take upstream code and package it for Arch. There's a few Arch-specific things, like package managers, unsurprisingly, but mostly Arch is we take upstream stuff, throw together a, a packaging script, and, and away it goes. I think going back to Dan's pro- um, problem, it really is audience size. Like you know, Joe said it was companies that. Uh, support these things. But it comes down to engineers. There are engineers who make the driver for that fingerprint reader, if we take that example. And those engineers are being paid, yes, by a company. And if you don't have engineers being paid to work on stuff um, when you're a company that's selling that fingerprint reader into um, a laptop manufacturer, then that laptop manufacturer is not going to put your fingerprint reader in their laptop it's you know part of the part of the deal like here's a piece of hardware whatever it is it could just be a, a chip that supports power management or it could be some other interface device within within the computer um, and that comes with an expectation that there are drivers and it turns out there are way more windows users than there are linux users so it's just a no-brainer that there are windows drivers for everything really it's getting better but it's still not
2: entirely surprising. Doesn't this come down to users should buy hardware that they know is going to work rather than just buy some random hardware and hope it works? I've had a lot of clashes with friends and family who've tried out Linux and said, oh, that Linux thing is terrible. I tried it on my laptop and this, that and the other didn't work. And I think to myself, well, you just bought a random laptop from Curry's and thought that it would just work with Linux. You didn't do any research. You didn't." For example, even look at the hardware compatibility um, thing on the Ubuntu website. You know, and okay, yeah, fair enough. That shouldn't be the case, but or they didn't buy from Entware or System seventy six or um, or Dell or whatever a machine running Linux. And isn't that the answer to this? Well, no, because
0: that's our fault. It's it's our fault if if we make it seem like you should be able to download this ISO image, or you should be able to get a usb key from our store and it work on your computer it's our fault if we've set the expectations incorrectly that it doesn't um and we should not do that we should have the standard disclaimer that actually this might not work on your system and if it doesn't here's the support avenue by the way these are volunteers but if you want to get paid support you could pay one of these companies and they'll support you getting your printer fingerprint reader whatever it is working. So, I don't think that's it. I think it's I don't think it's unreasonable for people to buy a rando computer and expect that an operating system would work on it.
1: I think that's probably the right direction, right? Is if we really want to make sure that hardware support is good, that reducing the scope of claimed supported hardware probably is the best path for us. Um, which I'm sure people really object to that because they don't want a situation like Apple, right, where it's, oh, you can only run it on these specific machines. But that really is the way to get the best hardware support, right, is to have such a limited scope of hardware that you say this is what it works on.
0: What you've also got to remember is that Dell have partnerships with companies to write the Linux drivers, Hello, Canonical. So Dell ship devices to Canonical in Taipei, and the guys over there write drivers and add whatever support is needed, and that goes into the next generation of Dell laptops. And other companies do that as well. I'm sure Red Hat and other companies do that as well. But there are companies who are paid to pay engineers to do this work. And because someone has to do it somewhere, otherwise there'll be no drivers for anything. And that's what it was like like 15 years ago, before you whippersnappers came along. It
2: was editing your xorg.conf and it was recompiling your kernel and all of that nonsense. Yeah, so what we have to do is buy machines from companies who are selling specifically Linux hardware, and that will become a virtuous circle. Don't buy a machine if it's not going to work with Linux.
1: On the other hand, what do you feel like that people who want the hardware that they have or the hardware that they're interested in to work with their distro should be doing? Because what if the options that you can buy don't have the kind of modern features that people expect when they buy computers? The supported computers don't have you know, such and such uh, fingerprint readers and accelerometers and, and things that the that users want in their computers are just kind of basic uh what if they don't have, you know, multiple graphics cards or, or uh Thunderbolt and things like that? What what is the path for users to say, hey, I want modern hardware with modern features and I don't want to run Windows or OS ten? And what about
0: people who can't afford another computer? Like, this is the only computer I own. I have no other option. I don't have enough funds to, to buy another computer. It should work. It sh- there should be an option for me to run a freedom-loving operating system on basically any old computer. Now, it gets a bit much if you're talking more than, like, 10 or 15 years ago. And I appreciate there are some people out there who run super crusty old laptops with, like, a gig of RAM. But in the modern age, if you want to get something done, you need something like five to seven years old, maybe less. And you can pick something up relatively cheap, um, but you don't necessarily have control over which wireless chipset is in there or what GPU it is. So beggars can't be choosers. You can't always say, you know, this cheapo laptop that I'm going to buy it absolutely has to have an Intel Wi-Fi card. It has to be supported by Linux. And Sometimes people aren't. Uh, equipped with the knowledge of figuring out how like I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how to figure out what fingerprint reader chipset was in my device or what the SATA firmware was I I'd have to go rummaging and I've been using this stuff for a, a long time so no idea what a n- normal person would do
2: so what we need to do then is create an organization maybe have the Linux foundation do this That takes in funds, donations, fundraising, whatever, maybe from companies, and hires engineers to write the drivers or reverse engineer the drivers or whatever, get Linux working on this modern hardware, and then all the different distros can benefit from that, and all the users who want these modern features can use their machines. Simple. And who pays them? Well, like I said, you have to do fundraising, don't you? Whether that is from companies or just donation drives or whatever, how do you raise money? Well, there's a million ways to do it. And just as a community, maybe we should just accept that we're going to have to put a few quid in each to this if we want to have modern features and have Linux stay up to date on hardware.
0: I appreciate your optimism, Joe, but we've seen many times that fundraising for uh, open source software Doesn't work very well. And it works even less well for some rando niche chip that only a few hundred or a few thousand people have got in their laptop. I think I'm not sure that's the right model. It kind of needs to be commercial arrangements like we have, like Canonical has a deal with Dell and they write the drivers or uh, enable the hardware that Dell ship. And if more companies like HP and Acer and all the others did that, then yeah, we'd have a better time. Whether it's Linux Foundation
1: or someone else, I don't know, but it's a hard thing to solve. And then once the drivers are available, then there's the next step of getting that hardware in front of desktop environment makers who can design and build and test and iterate on the features that are enabled by that hardware, right? If it's not just something so easy as does the graphics card work, but, um, you know, do you get a notification or a, um, Indicator or like what happens when we're interacting with hardware like security features on Thunderbolt. There's a whole process that needs to happen beyond just does the hardware technically operate, right? So I think that there's a, a, even a step beyond that that is kind of a confusing place when the people that are making desktop environments maybe only get together in person a couple times a year and there's no such thing as a hardware lab for Gnome, right? Or for Pantheon. There's no central company that you can just walk to the lab and pick up the hardware.
2: Well, we just all need to use Ubuntu with Gnome then. Problem solved. Okay, hashtag ask error. How much time do you spend outside? (laughs) Uh, Not very much is my answer. What about you two? Does this include putting the bins out and getting them back in again (laughs) on a Friday?
1: (laughs) I just did the bins today. So I guess I bet my quota, haven't I?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I even get out of that these days because we've got so many foxes that they have to go out first thing in the morning and I'm always asleep first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I get the bins together and my wife puts them out. So. Yeah, how much time do I spend outside my tiny recording booth is probably a better question for me. Not very much. And how much time in the big blue room, very little. Although my wife tries to encourage me to go out as much as possible. Um, no, I, I tend to go for a little walk, a very little walk, uh, when it's not freezing cold at night, just to just to get out. To go to the kebab shop. Uh, well, no, I do occasionally drive to the chicken place. Uh, to get some nice fried chicken, <laughs> but <laughs> no, I I do in the summer actually. Uh, well, last summer at least, I went for a lot of walks at night because I don't like to go out during the day. There's too many people around. I like it when it's nice and quiet. Um, I don't. Do you two not ever go out and do things? Do you just stare at your computer all day?
1: So, uh, since we're uh, midtown hipsters and have a dog. Uh, you know, we at least have to go out to walk him, right? But uh, everything is is pretty close by. So we've kind of been walking a lot to go anytime we want to go to a restaurant or anything like that, but also just walking around the neighborhood and seeing like, oh, what open houses can we crash because it's that season, which is nice. And, you know, just wandering. Um, But I think uh, it's probably a lot different. I don't know what kind of areas that you guys live in, but I think there's more incentive for us to walk because there's so many things within walking distance. So we're actually out and walking quite a bit. And even um, sometimes to do light shopping and things like that, we can walk to different places.
2: Well, I've got four pubs within walking distance, but they're all a bit shit, so I never go in them. But maybe I ought to. Actually, there's another two, the other direction. I think that says quite a lot about the UK, doesn't it? (laughs) I've got six pubs within walking distance. So I,
0: being a father, I am dad cabs. So I often have to take uh, Sam to football and Sophie to dancing. And often I will <laughs> take Sophie to dancing. And because it's it's that much of a distance that I, I it's not worth me coming back and the, it would be a ball's ache to come home and then go back out and pick her up. So I found a pub near where she um, dances and I drop her off, go to the pub. And then I sit in there with my laptop. And uh, I sometimes do some work in the in the pub, or you know, some personal stuff on the laptop in my in the pub, and then go and pick her up. Um, I've started uh, playing table tennis a bit more with my son because we quite like doing that. Uh, But yeah, I don't go out enough. I should. I know. And I keep beating myself up about that, but I don't. Um, in fact, I go out more when I'm on company events in various places. We go walk about and, you know, find bars and stuff. Um, so I probably walk more when I'm not at home than when I'm at home. Because I'm around other people who like to walk about.
2: Well, while people are listening to this, we actually probably, all three of us, will be together and walking around at Linux Fest Northwest.
0: Oh,
1: Yeah.
2: So I've got a question for you guys. If you're wedded to a concept or axiom for your job, is there any way you can be objective about criticism of your field? So AI is a prime example of that. The people who are working on it seem to be just unable to grasp any criticism and take it on board. The fact that certainly working on uh, general AI is probably a bad idea and, you know, we, we could debate that and we probably should debate that at another time. Um, and climate science is another one. Now, I'm not saying that I am denying climate change is real or anything like that. I don't really know anything about it. So I'm going to take their word for it. But if your whole job and your whole career depends on just this one thing being true, then it's very difficult for you to take any criticism of, of that thing that you are doing and i I suppose it applies to the whole linux and open source thing to some extent in that you know we sometimes think that it's a bigger deal than it is certainly on the desktop but am i wrong about this or uh, or what
1: i don't know i kind of i kind of feel like there's a there's a couple different things right one is like taking criticism and not like imploding from it Right. And then another is like learning from criticism. I think they're two separate things. And there there is a category of criticism where it's not useful in any way. And the only thing you can do with it is just kind of spit it back into good PR, like, hey, you know what? This person uh, was not constructive in any way, but we were able to kind of um, maybe turn this into a learning opportunity or show onlookers that we still care about what people think. And then there's another category of criticism, which is like, what do our competitors know that we don't know? And what can we learn from their processes? And you know what? Maybe their product is better at this thing. And we don't have to fundamentally change the way we work to understand that we are not as competitive as we could be. And there are places where we could meet uh, user demands better.
0: Yeah, I think I feel similarly. We we get a lot of criticism f- because we've been around a long time. We've done things that people don't like. And, you know, you can't please everyone. You know that. And it used to really bug me that people would say Canonical did this because X, Y, Z. And, you know, I know that's not the case, but it's their opinion, man. They can say what they like. I know it's not true. And sometimes I would argue with people on the internet. I suffer from XKCD386. And I would get frustrated when... People would criticize us for doing something that we didn't even do. Like it's fair enough to criticize us for something we did do, but criticizing us for something we didn't do is like, you know, claiming we did do it is, is like worse in my book. It's more frustrating, especially when people are spreading that misinformation. There's a lot of people making YouTube videos, making blog posts, writing news articles and stuff and writing stuff that's just wrong based on misunderstanding or or whatever and and that can be a little bit frustrating and sometimes you reach out to those people and say hey you know that's misinformed or whatever but when it's like proper actual critique and it's backed by here is some data to show that what you're doing is wrong or what you're doing is not optimal then sure we need to look at that um You know, if it's a forum post that says, hey, you stinky head, you suck, then we're probably going to ignore it. But if it's someone who comes along with data that shows us that we're doing something wrong, then we'll listen. We had that today. We got an email from someone who said, hey, you're doing this thing. You probably want to do this other thing and it will benefit your users and it will benefit our users. And so we're looking into that. Like initially we were like, oh God, that guy, oh him telling us this. But when you take a step back and think about it, He's doing, he's telling us this thing because he has data and he has users and he wants his users to be happy and he wants his users who are using our product to be happy. And so, you know, we've got to listen really. Um, And
2: it's difficult to be impartial, but you have to try. But what if your whole job depends on something being real? Um, You know, I I take climate change and climate science as the the sort of prime example of this, if it turned out that anthropogenic climate change was not real, and that it was, I don't know, solar activity or something, and the the fact that we're burning loads of uh, fossil fuels doesn't actually make any difference, which seems highly unlikely to be, but if that were to be true and proven so, then a whole bunch of climate scientists would suddenly be out of work. And therefore, it's not in their interests to prove that it is false. I mean, it's it's not a great example because it it seems so unlikely. <laughs> you see, you only have to drive somewhere and just see all the cars and trucks and just think, this is just my bit of this motorway or this road or whatever. And this is just everywhere in the world. So, you know, it, it seems very unlikely to me. But even sort of slight criticisms of... The degree of warming, for example, um, it, it's it's very hard for anyone to raise any issues like that with the climate science community because um, they're just instantly labelled as a denier and um, and just completely discredited. And you know, the same with AI as well. Like people are just called crackpots because they think that generalized AI is going to take over the world and kill us all or whatever and it does seem a bit crackpotty but it, do you get what i'm trying to say here that like if if your whole sort of world your whole work world at least depends on something being just true and you just, it's just this accepted thing it is very very hard to to accept anyone else's uh, you know opinion if it's kind of disproving it
1: Well, I guess if you spin it around the other way, right, and talk about maybe um, some large oil company, right? Or or set of oil companies. And their whole premise is based on the extraction of oil, right? But it seems like what those companies are doing is they're saying, okay, well, you know what, instead of being oil companies, we're going to be energy companies, and we're going to pivot. And um, we can still provide the world's energy and be leaders here and and have tons of profit. But we can do it in a way that it turns out is much better.
2: Do they actually do that or do they just fund crackpot <laughs> climate deniers? I'm I'm not so sure I agree with the, the your description of the way science works. I don't think
0: you said you said something like um, if the Climate change that we know or we take as a, as accepted science now is proven to be wrong, then all these clients, climate scientists will be out of a job. That's not how science works. They're, if it's proven wrong, then you know, with evidence, with data that says, you know, here's our theory and here's the experiment, and here's the reproducible experiment that proves that your theory is wrong, and and then that becomes the science fact, if you like. And then they'll work to counter that, or they'll work on refining that. I don't think it's the case that all those, it's not like a football game, where the other team have to go home holding their head in their hands.
2: It's a constant effort to improve human knowledge. It's not not us against them. So you're saying they just use their skills as scientists in other slightly related fields or something?
0: No, they continue working in the field that they specialize in, I think, and and it might be that they're in exactly the same way that, that Dan says. You might change your focus slightly, so instead of working on getting the most miles per gallon out of a petrol car, you get the most miles per gallon out of an electric car. You know, it's it's different science, but it's similar. I'm failing to
2: explain this. I don't think
0: you are. I completely understand your argument, and I, and I can get where you're going, but um you know the the people who are so uh strongly in favor of their argument you, you could take previous examples where people so in favor of um you know d d t or so in favor of uh tobacco or so in favor of you know giving. Uh, people, certain types of medicines, that now we look back and think, oh my God, those people were crazy. Why were they doing that? And it's because that was the accepted science, but it had to take someone else to come along with data and experiments and theories and proof to show that that's no longer true. And it's okay. It's okay for science to change over time. It always does. Things we believed that were true in the past, we no longer believe to be true because we have new evidence that proves that that's not the case. I think that's fine.
1: Sure. Haven't you seen, um, you know, the meat at the market change lately that there's so many more labels that are no hormones, no antibiotics ever, things like that. Everything is organic, grass fed. (laughs) And they're still the same companies. It's the exact same companies that sold us the old stuff. Right. And they're just saying, OK, well, you know what? Cool. Profits over here. Move. Exactly.
2: No, we don't have stickers saying there's no hormones and things because we don't have that in our food here because we're British. (laughs) Although we will do soon, probably. Hashtag ask error. You find an application that you want is not available in your distro's repo, but is available via a community package, like a PPA or AUR, as a snap or a flat pack or an app image. Which do you choose and why? Now, there's no point even asking you, Poppy. Obviously, you're going to say snap. (laughs) Uh, You do this all the time. You've,
0: like, prejudged what I'm going to say, and I'm not going to say it. Uh, Like it depends um i can i can tell you i have 250 something snaps installed on my laptop and i have exactly one app image so you know that's data that tells you what i would likely do but i also have ppas and i also have deb's from the archive and there are some of those deb's that i have from the archive that are also available as snaps and as flatpaks and as uh, app images i'm lazy and i choose whatever's easiest if the application i want is in the archive and it's up to date and it's got all the features i want i'll just apt install it if it's a snap i'll snap install it if neither of those are true then i'll go hunting wherever it may be and if it's not packaged at all then i'll probably try and make it into a snap so that's the reason why i've got lots of snaps is because many of them are ones i've made myself because you know eat my eat my own dog food drink my own champagne but the I, the app image that I have, I have installed because there is no other package that I I could use that that I want. So, I'll just u- I'm just lazy. I'll just use whatever's the most
2: convenient. Yeah, but you would default to Snap first. No, Deb's first. If it's in the archive, I'll just app, app to install it. Yeah, but the question is, it's not available in the archive. Well, if there's a PPA, I
0: might go looking for a PPA. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, probably if it's not in the the Ubuntu archive then maybe there's a PPA I'll go and get that if there's not a PPA but there is a snap then I'll get that um because I, li- I like the way snaps work and I can debug them if they go wrong and I know who to go and beat around the head if they don't work whereas I don't really know what to do if a flat pack goes wrong plus there's the overhead of having additional runtimes for other like things that I'm only using for one application which makes no sense fair enough so
2: Dan presumably flat pack for you
1: well, so the premise of the question makes it sounds like there's no official support from the software developer whatsoever, right? And the only thing is it has to be a community. Some rando packaged it up and you have to use this app. I mean, it just sounds like a dam- dangerous premise. It's like, what is the least bad option? <laughs> um, so I think that PPA is probably the worst option because it's, the most if it's some random person that they decide oh you know what i i think what would be great in my ppa is also this modded version of glib you know that it's like the way to either have something terribly insecure get installed into your system without your knowledge or something that just destabilizes everything so i i kind of would steer away from that one the most um App image just seems like a pain because it's not integrated in any way with anything. And it's just kind of this alien like macOS style thing that doesn't help me in any way. So I, I would say I would choose whichever one seems to be sandboxed better. If I have to use some randos version that I would either go with the snap or the flat pack, that seems like. Well, it's either it's either got the most active maintainer or the strictest stand sandboxing on it.
0: So, for the community maintained PPA part, I I would certainly err towards ones that are maintained by the upstream. So, uh, if if there's part of the community around that application, it doesn't have to be the upstream developer themselves who maintains that PPA. But if they've got a team of people and someone who is on that team maintains the PPA, then I would. I would agree with Dan. I would err more towards a project-maintained PPA and away from some rando dude on the internet who's thrown something in a PPA. Yeah, that's potentially dangerous.
2: I used to use PPAs quite a lot, actually. I think now I do to some extent, but I think ultimately snaps are just the easiest because installation is just so easy. Pseudo snap install the thing, and then they auto-update and... I think that you've just basically sold me. You and Winpress have just completely brainwashed me into thinking they're the best. And every time I've tried Flatpak, they just shit the bed and don't work. So I've used an app image before. I can't remember what that was. And that worked really well, actually. So if that's coming directly from the website of the, um, you know, the author of the software, then I'd be tempted to do that. But yeah, I think ultimately Snap's just the easiest
1: Yeah, it would seem that between the Snap Store and FlatHub that having to go outside of having some kind of at least semi-supported channel that's getting updates and things like that is it's becoming more and more rare. And I think that's a really good thing. You shouldn't have to be hunting down some extra repo or downloading a package from a website to, to get the apps you need. Okay, so a question I
2: think you came up with, Poppy, is it okay to pirate Abandonware? Now, I think we have to define what Abandonware is first, Mm -hmm. because um, that really depends. Do you consider Photoshop 7 to be Abandonware? Because that's not getting any updates anymore, even though there are clearly new versions of Photoshop, Um, or if it's some old game that just isn't maintained anymore then maybe that is okay i don't know so first of all please define what abandonware is so from my perspective abandonware became a phrase used
0: by people who wanted to use old software often old ms dos games but yeah you know, software applications that are not games as well um but it was often used to coin, as a term used to um refer to software that you can feel morally okay about copying, which means like in breach of the copyright of the software vendor, you could feel okay about that because the upstream developer has in inverted commas gone away or doesn't care or doesn't provide any support for it anymore. It's like any of those encompassing terms, you could say it's abandoned. Um, now, I don't agree with that. I think the term abandonware is a get-out that people have uh, used on the internet for many years to say oh, it's okay to pirate this thing. I'm not pirating. I'm I'm preserving abandonware. Um, much like when you see people on YouTube who embed other people's content in their video and then in the description write "no copyright intended" as, <laughs> yeah. as if as if that that you know is some legal phrase that gets them out of anything. So that's, that's
2: where I come from, from, from Abandonware. That's, that's the definition that I would think. So what if it's a game that you played as a kid, but didn't necessarily own, say your friend owned it, and you really want to play it, and you've got the emulator that can do it, and you don't even have to work very hard to get it. You can just do a Google search, and then there's the ROM available for an HTTP download. Are you saying that you wouldn't do that?
0: No, I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm saying I don't believe that you can use the term Abandonware... To morally justify it. Um, and that said, hypocritically, I probably have in the past used the term abandonware. Oh, it's abandonware. It's fine. Because the thing is, if I go and download, let's say some Sinclair Spectrum game from 30 years ago that I played as a kid that my mate had, and I have lovely memories of that game, you could argue that the original developer has already been paid 10 times over like 30 years ago. And now, there's no way for me to buy that game. And that would have been the case up until about 10 years ago when it started being possible to commercially buy licensed software from the past. Like these catalogs, these back catalogs came out and you could buy like boxed sets of, you know, reviving your nostalgic memories from the past. And this is where the whole abandonware falls down because a lot of these games are still owned by someone, like the license has been passed on through acquisition over all the years, and now someone else owns that name. Like if you think about the name Atari, God knows who owns Atari now, but it's been passed around from pillar to post, and somebody still that owns that name, and owns the rights to some of that library of software. And therefore, legally, they should be able to repackage that software and redistribute it, and therefore it's not abandoned.
1: Yeah, I'd have to agree. If it's being distributed, then you can't really call that abandoned, can you? I think that if it is not possible for me to go buy a copy, uh, and, and have it working, then. That's probably abandoned. And, and I guess you could make an argument of like, well, you could, you know, march down to such and such store or search eBay until you find the right console and then you could play that one game. But it kind of seems like in the case of things like games that if I can't buy a maintained copy that will run on some kind of modern supported maintained device, then That seems to fit the category of abandoned to me. And if nobody is currently caring about trying to make a profit off of that software, then it kind of seems like maybe there is a moral obligation to change the license. Maybe it's not my fault. Maybe it's their fault for having it locked down still. But
0: what's the statute of limitations on that? Like for, For maybe 15, 20 years, Nobody was redistributing for money those Sinclair Spectrum games and those Commodore 64 games. And now there's like this recreated C64 mini and there's Sinclair Spectrums that have got re-licensed software. But if you, you could argue that within the 20 years in between that software was abandoned, but now it's not, it's not abandonware. And so my, my argument always was that the term abandonware is, is, is a little bit tenuous because you can never say that something is abandoned in perpetuity you can only say at the moment nobody seems to care about that software but you don't know if some engineer somewhere in japan or in america is currently building a device and they have the license for that piece of software you can't possibly know and then you know next christmas the nintendo mini comes out it's um so i i have a real problem with the term abandonware but i love playing old games that's the problem i have
1: we have a system for this for other kinds of um, intellectual property, right? Like cartoon characters and movies and things like that, right? Isn't there, isn't there some limitation already kind of imposed there where it's like, oh, this hasn't been used or uh, it's been around for so long that it should fall into the public domain?
0: So 50 years after it was created or depending upon where your copyright law is or 75 years after the author's death um these computer games were made 30 years ago so they they're not they're not out of copyright yet uh, in any country I've been to
1: so does that just mean that maybe we need to update the law a little bit that the the cycle has shortened and that it's a spirit of the law is that these things should fall into the public domain. But the letter of the law right now is that the period of time that we wait has become too long for the kinds of intellectual property that we're producing.
0: Or we do what archive.org does and just archive it all and wait and see what happens. And that's essentially what they do. They have archives of tons of stuff, and they certainly don't have the rights to some of the content that's on the site. And I'm sure they do take stuff down if they get told. But it's kind of one of those, you know, just don't worry about it. Well, it, it, I, I don't know what their internal thought process is, but it feels like it's, well, we'll just put it up and don't worry about it. And if someone tells us to take it down, we'll take it down. But thankfully, nobody has. So we'll just leave it there.
2: Surely the moral thing to do is look around, see if you can buy that thing, whatever that thing is. And if you can't, then it's okay to pirate it for want of a better word now and then if at some point it becomes commercially available spend the money on it buy the NES mini or whatever it is and therefore that clears your conscience
0: I guess I mean I so for the games that I play the most they're arcade games and I actually own the boards for all the games that I really play a lot so I uh, during the 1990s, I went out and bought R-Type and Nemesis and Scramble and Ghosts and Goblins and a whole bunch of other arcade boards, and they're all sat in my loft. And so I've downloaded the ROMs for all those games, and I feel somewhat more morally okay about that, even though, you know, the ROM that I've downloaded off the internet might not be the exact, you know, if you do the checksums, might not be the same ROM that I've got in my loft but it's close enough, and I feel okay about that. But I don't do that for every game. There are some games that I I don't have a copy of in my loft that I still download and play, and I, I'm pretty upfront about that. That's fine, but I, I, I do try and pay for stuff if I can.
2: What about the example that I used at the beginning of this, Photoshop 7? So what about... Uh, I use that example, by the way, because I'm told that it works really well with wine. Um, I think I tried it once, and it did work pretty well, and I think it's the last version of Photoshop that works... Perfectly with wine. I happen to be a victim of uh, software piracy, whatever. What's that message that Microsoft gives you? A victim. Yeah, um, that, that's how they 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 say it. If you've got a dodgy version of Windows, that, that's how they say it. And I actually was because when I bought my first computer, I was given a CD, uh, you know, a CDR or D V D R or whatever, and it had loads of software on it, including Photoshop Seven. And so I actually did buy it with, well, it was sort of thrown in, and, uh, you know, I, I knew nothing about computers back then, so um, so I've got this copy of it anyway, and I didn't pirate it, someone else did.
0: <laughs> what, like, I didn't bring those cigarettes across the border, somebody else did, I just bought them in the pub, so that's okay.
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. But the point I'm making is, um, old versions of stuff that has been effectively abandoned by the likes of Adobe... Is that morally justified to pirate that?
1: No way. It's not abandoned if someone is maintaining it and you're like, well, this old version isn't maintained. Like, that's the the definition of that it's being maintained is that there's new versions. Otherwise, they just keep the same number on it forever and then be like, yep, it's, it's still Photoshop 7. We're just maintaining that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's a good argument. I like that.
2: Right, well, I've just looked on eBay and Photoshop 7 is there for 10 quid, so I should clear my conscience and spend the tenner for an actual boxed copy of it that I can just stick on my shelf and never use.
0: Well then, the the question there is: see, this is all controlled by lawyers. So, even then, if you bought that box, are you legitimately buying the license? Are the are the Adobe licenses transferable from one person to another, or are you just technically buying the media? We've talked about this in the past. You're not actually buying a li- the media; you're buying a license to use the media. And by paying ten quid on eBay, you're not buying a license; you're buying the media.
2: Yeah, almost certainly somewhere in the small print will say that it's not transferable. So yeah, you're right. There's just no way to to, to do it properly. I, I genuinely didn't know anything about it back then. And the guy, it's a small computer shop near where I used to live. And um, I just, I went in and said, oh, this is my budget, build me a desktop computer. I want to make some music with it. And he built me the worst fucking machine you can imagine. It was just some <laughs> dodgy Athlon or something and he just totally stitched me up but he did give me a CD full of wares, so you know, swings and roundabouts.